Hello, lifers. This is Heather Drew, and this is the Life in the Whirlwind podcast. Today is episode 44, and this episode is called The Reciprocating Self. So over the last couple of weeks, we have started a series on unity with self and unity with others. So last week we talked about unity with self and we talked about the relationship with the surface self and how that can be in conflict with or diminish uh, the deeper self and that there are just these different levels of operation of self, right? So there are times when we show certain parts of ourself that are the surface self uh, and that's to prevent rejection, right? It's this... Um, this survival tactic to some degree, right? Where we're trying to belong. And so we use these qualities of the surface self to to, uh, help us be accepted. Um, And then we talked about the deeper self a little bit, but I didn't dive in, in case you didn't notice that. Not sure if you noticed, but I didn't really go into detail with the deeper self, because this week we are going to dive deeper into the deeper self. (laughs) So, um, as I was, okay, so a lot happens. My brain is sort of like fireworks sometimes. So I start thinking about something and then I remember all these things in the past that I've thought about this topic or heard about this topic or read. And that's exactly what happened. So all it took was me needing to teach a class on the theology of unity at my school. And suddenly all these things started rising to the surface about the self. And it reminded me that in grad school, I read a book called The Reciprocating Self. And it's a very, it's, it's a good book. It's very interesting. It's on sort of the theology of human development, basically. And so if you're into those kinds of things, if you're into uh, human development, if you find it fascinating, and you also find uh, theology fascinating, might be an interesting book for you, The Reciprocating Self. One section that I really remembered recently uh, as I was thinking about the series and how I'm teaching and things that I've been thinking about and sort of ways that I do relationship I remembered this one section from this book. I think the section is called A Trinitarian Analogy of Being and Becoming. (laughs) I'm sure you can imagine I enjoyed that title (laughs) very much, Being and Becoming. That's all you have to say. But one section in this chapter talks about how the self relating and expressing itself dynamically impacts how the self relates to and reciprocates in relationship with other people. So I I realize that's a very chunky sentence. So let's break this down a little bit. So, um, well, actually, let me move forward and then I'll break it down as I go. So this chapter, the Trinitarian analogy of being and becoming, it talks about God. It talks about God's dynamic relationship with God's self, <laughs> and how we are made in that image and how we therefore relate to ourself and uh, express ourself dynamically. So that being said, 
in this chapter, uh, the authors, the editors, they visit this older theory by a man named Martin Buber. Martin Buber is a Jewish theologian. He uh, Shout out to my neighbor, Stephen, who introduced me to Martin Buber's work a couple years ago, several years ago. Thank you, Stephen. I still have that book on my shelf, by the way. I haven't lost it. <laughs> it's in my right side up room on the shelf. But Buber talks about um, this concept of um, the theology of anthropology. Okay. Had to grab the book here. So he talks about um, Martin in this book. It talks about Martin Buber's theological anthropology. And I want to read this section to you from the book, The Reciprocating Self. So he says, this is from page 40. Uh, Buber's theological anthropology was that human beings are to be in relationships where a whole self, the I, is in mutual relationship with a whole other, the thou. So his theory, Martin Buber's theory is the I-thou relationship. This supposes an authentic personal encounter of both the I and the thou. One is not dominant, the other is not inferior. The relationship is characterized especially by the reciprocity of communication. Buber starkly contrasted I-thou with I-it, ways of relating the former being appropriate to the way a person should relate to humans and God, the latter the way to relate properly to the impersonal natural world. Buber regarded relating to persons as if they were things as a violation of humanity and God. Engaging in such I-it relationships among persons, the I could only experience him or herself as superior while also failing to see the other as a whole self, experiencing the other only as an impersonal it. Both persons were thereby dehumanized. So Martin Buber's theory here that we're that we hear here is that, you know, he there's certain things happening, but there's a recognition, there's this engagement with this concept that we've been talking about of differentiation and linkage. The whole self relating to the whole other. There's a distinct and valuable I in this. And then there's a distinct and valuable mutual recognition of the other, and that is the thou. So in this picture... You recognize that you are valuable, and then you become into that. And then equally important, and a very natural outcome of the first, is encountering the other's self as valuable and becoming. This is radical, it is simple, and it is difficult. But this is the reciprocating self. So I think what this says, at least in part, about our engagement with the deeper self is that it is 
generative. It is dynamic. It's so dynamic and generative that it's almost like it's like the self relates to the self. It relates to itself. So uh, I want to talk about the deeper self for a second here. I want you to imagine it's almost like soup. <laughs> not out of a jar, not Campbell's, not, you know, something that you would buy at the store, something that you would make out of ingredients. I'm autumn is coming. It's it's here, but it's slowly emerging in Philadelphia here, but uh with fall comes food analogies as a warning here. So soup is soup. Well, it's soup actually. It's it's sort of one thing, right? It's soup. We say soup. When you hand someone a bowl of it, you say, here is your soup. You don't say, here is your carrots, onion, celery, garlic, chicken broth, uh, you know, whatever, M- marjoram, you know, all these different things. You don't say, here are all these ingredients. You say, here is your soup. So it's this one thing, but it is made up of many different parts, many different ingredients. And when you're making soup, sometimes there is a dominant flavor. And if that's the case, that's what you taste the most. So if you're making, if you're, you know, a somewhat qualified cook uh, to make a soup that does not have a dominant flavor, you tend to add different ingredients and the right proportions of ingredients, right? But sometimes, maybe when you're just learning to make soup, you add too much of something or the cap falls off while you're shaking the spices and it dumps into the pot and you try to rescue it, but realistically, that's going to be a dominating flavor. But a really good thing about a really good soup is that it provides a mouthful of many flavors. And it almost is so uh, balanced that what you're tasting is soup. So you're not tasting too much garlic, too much onion, too much cumin. You're tasting soup. But also, here's another. I'm just going to take this the whole way because... Who doesn't like talking about soup and the self? (laughs) As a soup is cooked, each ingredient tends to start taking on qualities of other ingredients. So if I want carrots, I'm not going to, like if I just want the carrot taste, I'm not going to eat carrots in a soup. I'm going to eat carrots. If I want carrots that are part of something that have taken on qualities of other ingredients. I'm going to eat soup. Do you hear what I'm saying here? Still, each each ingredient in a soup is still distinctly unique. It's still a unique, distinct part. A carrot is still a carrot in a soup, but it's also relating to the other ingredients. It's also taking on flavors of these other ingredients. This is the self. There are so many parts that we have in us, and I'm not talking about multiple personality disorders or dissociative identity type stuff. I'm just talking about the self in general has many parts. That's how we're made. It's, um, it's deep. It's complex. It's layered. 
And it's really well-made. It's not boring at all. There's nothing boring about the self. If you ever call yourself boring, I want you to re-listen to this episode and just remember how unboring you are. Uh, so like a soup, there are so many pieces. There's so many parts. And there's there's balance. There's flavor profile. There's... Um, dominant traits there's less dominant traits. of course all of these things are true in the deeper self and we're going to talk about parts later in a next in a future episode i believe i'm going to try to do that if i don't come around to it i apologize but in this analogy there's also this concept of okay the soup is then part of a larger picture of a table of food or a meal or like a multi-course feast or a day of eating, you know? It's this part. It is made up of parts and it is part of something larger. When you, you know, they say you are what you eat. Your body contains part of the soup when you eat it. So let's come back to Martin Buber and how this book, The Reciprocating Self and Soup, have things in common. And I want to talk about his concept of the I and thou. So I'm going to do my best here and try not to get all muddled. But this book takes Buber's I and thou theory to the next level. Uh, this book, The Reciprocating Self. So in what they do is they present this four possible options of how relation to the self and relation to other others occurs in reciprocal or non-reciprocal states. So I'm going to break it down for you, okay? There's four different parts here. There is, and I will explain them after I list them. There is the it, it. There is the I, it. There is the it, thou. And then there is the I, thou. I'm going to go out of order. I just listed them in one order. I'm going to describe them in a different order. So I'm going to first describe the it, thou. The it, thou is, so anytime you hear it, that means there's a devalued state. When you hear I, that's a valued state of self. And when you hear thou, it's a valued state of other. It is a devalued state. So, The first one, it, thou, means I, the self, am devalued, and the other, thou, is valued, overly valued. So in the book, The Reciprocating Self, they call this fusion. So this person who operates in the it, thou state tends to seek close relationships with other people to gain, in hopes to gain, a sense of value and self-acceptance. The problem with this, as I'm sure you can imagine, is that it becomes very quickly enmeshed. There's this loss of the self. There's this objectifying of the self. I am nothing, you are everything. And I'm sure you can hear how that's unhealthy, and I'm sure... Many of us do this without even knowing it, to be honest. When you are in a line at a grocery store and you see a magazine with a celebrity on it, you are doing it. You are 
valuing, well, I don't know if you are, but if you look at that person and you have this high value or sort of this flutter of, man, I wish I was like that person, there's this low value of self, lower value of self, and then this high view of other. So this is what some people call codependent relationship. Um, yeah, fusion, that's it. It, thou. The second one I want to talk about is I, it. So I is this high view of self, and it is the low view of other. So in this state, uh, the other is just an instrument, not integral to the self. The other person is instrumental but not integral. The other person is an object, uh, a means to my own end. It's dismissive of the other and it elevates the self. So this is sort of like an objectifying situation. The third one is the it-it dynamic. And this is isolation. This is disconnection from the self. This is devaluing of the self and disconnection and devaluing of the other. This is a picture of uh, what I guess I would call like existential solitary confinement. (laughs) You know, in prison, one of the punishments when you do something terrible, terribly wrong, this is maybe an archaic view, but I don't know if they, if this happens still or if it's even like the worst punishment, but solitary confinement is a thing. One of my favorite movies is Shawshank Redemption. And I just recently have been thinking about it so that, you know, when somebody gets in trouble, they go to solitary confinement. It, it relationship is like an existential solitary confinement. It's this state of being disconnected from self and being disconnected from other. So those are the three leading up to this other one, the fourth one. The fourth one is the I-thou relationship. There is a symbiotic and similar encounter of the self and the other. There is a full valuing of the becoming of both self and other where we encounter the self and other and God most fully is in this space. There is no dominant person. There is no diminished person. It is all valuable. I, thou. So uh, on this episode on my website, lifeinthewhirlwind.com slash podcast, I'm going to put a picture of a painting, a Mary Cassatt painting called Baby's First Caress. And this is, I actually, if you follow me on Instagram on Life in the Whirlwind, my Life in the Whirlwind Instagram uh, profile, I posted a picture of this painting yesterday, last night. So you can see it there, uh, Life in the Whirlwind on Instagram. Check it out. But you can see this pic- this painting of Mary Cassatt's. It's Baby's First Caress. It's this mutual encounter. It's this reciprocating, becoming, and valuing. Oh, it's so beautiful. So here is an important, no, no, no. 
here is a crucial, crucial note that we need to consider in all of this. When one part is it, either dismissed or devalued, the other part cannot be fully secured or valued. This goes for, you know, relationship with the self, and this goes for relationship with others. So anytime one is an it, the other cannot be fully secure or valued. So just keep that in mind. This has so many layers, I can't believe it. So here's a question for you. Remember back to episode 18, some of you might, some of you, a lot of you commented that this was a very powerful episode for you. This was called The Mischief of the Shadow Self. When there are parts of us that we dehumanize or shame or devalue or shove in a corner in a box to hide, we lose something. We lose some wholeness that we are originally meant to experience with ourself, capital S. So I can hear you now saying, yes, but Heather, 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 are you saying that I should seriously embrace and validate every single part of me? Really? You know, and, and the, the Christians might be saying something like, what about my sin? Am I supposed to embrace and validate my sinful self, my flesh? I hear you. I hear you. I do. But I would argue that there is a far greater danger. Here's a nuance. This is a nuance. Put on your nuance hat. Close your eyes. Think through this. There is a far greater danger when we ignore or lack awareness of the different parts of us. We can't just pay attention and acknowledge and be aware of and operate out of the parts of us that we like. It's hard to explain, but it's, I think it's true. Have you ever, okay, so here's this, think about this. Have you ever known somebody who is just not such a nice person? And, you know, maybe this person is the kind of person who is, you know, unaware, maybe just theoretically, uh, unaware of their insecurities or something. And so whenever they happen to encounter insecurity, they just are very mean to other people. And that's how they cope. Um, I'm sorry if your name is Dan, because that's going to be my example. (laughs) So, you know, have you ever been in this scenario where you knew somebody like this, not a very kind person, and everyone just sort of dismisses it and says, oh, that's just Dan. You're over here saying, you know, gosh, that really did not feel good. That felt really awful, actually. And other people are sort of just saying, meanwhile, you know, oh, that's just Dan. Poor Dan. (laughs) Not poor Dan because he's insecure. Not poor Dan because uh, other people are afraid of him. One of the many problems with this, oh, that's just Dan statement, is that somebody necessarily has to disconnect from Dan and maybe even has to disconnect from themselves to accept Dan's presence. They have to disconnect from Dan to survive. They have to disconnect from themselves if Dan is shaming them. Um, And Dan surely 
has to disconnect from some part of himself in order to do this. So embrace, validate, being aware of the things, every part of us, even the part that makes us mean. Super important. Because saying, oh, that's just Dan, is not loving Dan. Embracing Dan might mean we need to get to know Dan a little better. We need to move toward Dan, uh, even in his prickliness, if that is safe for us, in a ways, you know, if we can take that risk, if we're uh, loved, supported enough, healthy enough, uh, emotionally, and not abused by Dan, that kind of thing. And we can earn a little bit of cred with Dan and maybe speak some truth to him. Hey, Dan. Have you ever noticed that when someone says something to you that maybe I've noticed might be kind of hard or something, you kind of explode all over them? I wonder, you know, does that kind of feel bad for you like it does for me? I don't, that doesn't really feel good to me. So what do you think is happening there for you? (laughs) Easy, right? It's so easy to say, right? When someone's being mean to you. Big disclaimer, never do this with someone who is your abuser, unless your therapist tells you to, uh, or suggests that, or feels it feels good and right at the time. That's a whole other story, just as a disclaimer, though. But really, um, this is so much more valuing and aware of Dan than it is to say, oh, that's just Dan. Saying, oh, that's just Dan, feels like you're reciprocating, feels like you're in relationship with Dan, feels like you're seeing him. But what you're really doing is you're ignoring the fact that Dan is disconnected from himself and that he's not reciprocating with himself. And that's not okay. Like, it's just not, that's not kind or loving to Dan at all. Okay, coming back. I think one of the remarkable realizations that I had when I read Boober originally is this. I think we too often dismiss and devalue and dehumanize parts of ourselves and parts of others. We do it all the time without even noticing. And when we do this, we are not living a flourishing life. We are not self-reciprocating or other reciprocating. We are disconnecting. And we are not built to disconnect. We do it and it's not good for us. I will argue that to the grave. Um, We are made to be connected to self, to others, and enjoy it. That is what we are made for. We are made to enjoy reciprocity, to enjoy dynamic relationship that is moving, active, flourishing, blossoming, changing, hard, enjoyable, like all these different things. Reciprocity is tied, inextricably tied to flourishing. No? So because we care about flourishing here, I have an invitation for you. Can you look at this four-part model and find awareness about where you most frequently operate are you in in these categories does which one resonates it thou 
the I, it, the it, it, or the I, thou. Which of these resonates with you? Which one do you feel most, you feel you most frequently operate within? And just notice, find where you are now and just notice it. Just observe it. Don't need to judge it. Just notice it. And then perhaps in the noticing, you begin to gently consider where does value need to be recognized where it is not yet recognized? In myself, in the other, or both? Because truth be told, very few of us regularly or most frequently operate in the I, thou category without a whole lot of practice and uh, some familiarity with awareness of self and other awareness. So how might this, I want you to examine, you know, just consider this, notice it, and then perhaps invite yourself in a little bit deeper. How might this be holding you back? Where you devalue? Where do you see uh, a lower value of self or other? And how might this be holding you back from your best life available? And, you know, with all examination, I think there's a call to move. And that is maybe just how can I, what's one thing I can do to commit to practicing regularly moving more in that direction of where I put less value on self or other? So what is one thing you can commit to practicing regularly this week, this month, this year, whatever it is? that adds a little bit more value and awareness to self or other or both. My blessing to you, this is going to be something completely different today. I'm going to read you a passage from the Bible that is in the Old Testament. The, the Christians call this Old Testament. Um, it's from the book of Ezekiel, who was a prophet. And he which means he's a super truth teller. <laughs> That's the fancy way of saying, saying prophet. But this is from Ezekiel chapter 37. And these are verses 1 through 14. And I'm reading this from a translation that if you're familiar with the Bible, this is new to you probably. It's called The Voice. Very conversational, very refreshing, in my opinion, when you know the Bible well. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. Listen to this, let it wash over you. The eternal had a hold on me, and I couldn't escape it. The divine wind of the eternal one picked me up and set me down in the middle of the valley, but this time it was full of bones. God led me through the bones. There were piles of bones everywhere in the valley, dry bones left unburied. The eternal one said, Son of man, do you think these bones can live? And I said, Eternal Lord, certainly you know the answer better than I do. The Eternal One said, Actually, I do. Prophesy to these bones. Tell them to listen to what the Eternal Lord says to them. Dry bones, I will breathe breath into you, and you will come alive. I will attach muscle 
and tendons to you. I will cause flesh to grow over them, and I will cover you with skin. I will breathe breath into you, and you will come alive. After this happens, you will know that I am the Eternal One. So I did what God told me to do. I prophesied to the bones. And as I was speaking, I heard a loud noise, a rattling sound. And all the bones began to come together and form complete skeletons. I watched and saw the muscles and the tendons attached to the bones. I saw flesh grow over them, and I saw skin wrap itself around the reforming bodies. But there was still no breath in them. The Eternal One said, Prophesy to the breath. Speak, Son of Man, and tell them what the Eternal Lord has to say. O sweet breath, Come from the four winds and breathe into these who have been killed. Make these corpses come alive. And so I did what God told me to do. I prophesied to the breath. And as I was speaking, breath invaded the lifeless. The bodies came alive and stood on their feet. And I realized then that I was looking at a great army. The Eternal One said, Son of man, these bones are the entire community of Israel. They keep saying, Our bones are dry now, picked clean by scavengers. All hope is gone. Our nation is lost. And he told me to prophesy and tell them what he said. He said, Pay attention, my people. I am going to open your graves and bring you back to life. I will carry you straight back to the land of Israel. And then you will know that I am the eternal one. I will breathe my spirit into you. And you will be alive once again. God is not only the creator of life and wholeness. God is also the restorer of life and wholeness. And God is coming for everything. All of God wants all of you to live in generative reciprocity. God, who loves you like the ocean, will restore these things. That is my blessing to you today, my friends. Take great care of you, and I'll see you next week. Been traveling these wide roads for so long. My heart's been far from you, 10,000 miles gone. Oh, I want to come here and give you 
every part of me But there's blood on my hands And my lips are unclean In my darkness I remember Mama's words reoccur to me Surrender to the good Lord And he'll wipe your slate clean Take me to your river My sins flow down the Jordan. Oh, I want to come here and give you every part of me. But there's blood on my hands, and my lips are unclean. Take me to your river. Please let me know Take me to your river 